Hello, my name is Eva, and welcome to part two of the history of royal tennis, or real tennis as it is now known. Last time, we left off in the high medieval era as Louis X of France died from illness exacerbated by playing tennis in June of 1316. At that time, tennis was attaining its position as the sport of kings, for really, they and the wealthiest of nobles were the only ones with the means to pursue this pastime. Tennis then was primarily played indoors after the fashion of Louis X, and when it was played outdoors, it needed a patch of flat ground especially laid aside for the game. Or, at the very least, there was a need for a well-tamed grass field which would not damage the balls. Only the wealthy had such a tract of land to designate for sports. And the handmade balls were expensive, being made of cork from Spain and southern France and covered in tight-knit wool cloth from Melton in England. So, yes, in the 14th century, only those with time and money could afford tennis. But, as it has ever been, the pastimes of the powerful were imitated by those who themselves sought prestige. And in time, tennis balls started containing all manner of interesting and unusual stuffing. By the 15th century, cheaper tennis balls were to be had but they were stuffed with sand and sometimes gravel, making for serious injuries when striking ahead. And rumours abounded that inside certain tennis balls, horse intestines or pasted dirt could be found. In fact, when Westminster Hall underwent renovations in the 1920s, centuries-old tennis balls were found lodged in the roof some still stuffed with human hair. Contemporaries in the 15th century were well aware of these dubious practices, evidenced by the increasing number of laws enacted in the 1460s to prohibit stuffing unbecoming of a royal sport, and harsh days in dungeons could be expected if caught selling such unlawful items. The French king, Charles VIII, Charles VIII, who ruled between 1483 to 1498, was a man known to be particular with the design and construction of his favourite tennis balls. Yet this attention to detail could not prevent Charles from becoming the second French royal victim of tennis. According to the contemporary chronicler Philippe de Comines, Charles VIII planned to spend Easter of 1498 at his castle in Amboise. On the afternoon of the 7th of April, which happened to be Palm Sunday of that year, the king decided to attend a tennis match, which was being played on a makeshift court in a ditch just outside his castle walls. To get there, the king walked through the Aguilebac Gallery, which Comines himself described as the nastiest corner of the castle, 
dank, dark, and foul stinking from old urine. Hermine went on to remark that while the king was not a tall man, the gallery door was so low that the sovereign accidentally knocked his head on the lintel of the entrance door and sustained an unpleasant bruise. But the king carried on in good spirits to watch the game. Several hours later, the king, who was still in attendance, collapsed. Physicians rushed to his aid, and ordering him not to be moved, had the king laid out on a hastily made bed of rough timber and straw. And there, the king of France died some nine hours later, around 11 p.m. on the 7th of April, 1498. Much like his 14th-century predecessor, Louis X, Charles's death was not directly caused by tennis. However, his physicians and chroniclers all pointed to the knock on his head as he was going to watch tennis as the cause of death hours later. So by association, tennis, that still newfangled sport, was positioned as the killer though exactly why Charles died from his head injury remains a mystery. Even today, scientific articles are still being published which examine Charles's death. During my research for this podcast, I read a very interesting article from 2015 in the Journal of Neuroscience, which thoroughly examined Charles VIII's symptoms. But back in 1498, those of the clergy who were not enamoured by tennis quickly weighed in and saw the death of 27-year-old King Charles as proof positive of the evils of tennis as a pastime. The sport was for a while condemned as it had been a century earlier. But even as some bishops preached that God's wrath had been visited upon King Charles for enjoying tennis during the final week of Lent. Nobles kept on playing in the 15th century, as indeed they had in the century prior. By the time of Charles VIII's death, there were around 1,000 private tennis courts in France. So while it was still a newfangled sport, it was very popular amongst the high nobility in France. But just across the English Channel, tennis conquered hearts and minds at a much slower speed, having only caught the attention of such knights who had fought or who had parents who had fought in France during the English-French conflict known as the Hundred Years' War. The 15th century King Henry V, arguably England's greatest warrior king, at least according to many, not least Shakespeare, was an early English fan of the sport. But when the Hundred Years' War concluded in 1453, Henry V was long since dead, and with French victory in that hundred-year-long conflict, French customs and French habits went through a period of ill repute in England. But north of the River Tweed, the traditional border between the rival kingdoms of England and Scotland, tennis retained its kingly endorsement. 
it was a sport much loved by the very little loved 15th century King James I of Scotland, who maintained close ties to France on the basis of that much celebrated motto, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. While some of the rougher clan chiefs of Scotland scoffed at tennis and deemed it a foppish game, James spent a good deal of his wealth, well, the realm's wealth, on importing French tennis balls, which he cherished so much that he had a number of tunnels beneath his residences blocked up as he kept losing his tennis balls down into those murky underground floors. And this, his love of expensive tennis balls and closing off of tunnels, would be the death of him. For in the early hours of the 21st of February, 1437, James I fled his private chamber in Perth as a group of 30 men searched the residence with one intent in mind, to rid the world of the troublesome King James. James fled into the tunnels beneath his chamber, but soon found himself with his back against a bricked-up passage, in mortal peril and with nowhere to run, as the group of thirty men, former friends and rebellious Scottish clan chiefs cornered him, and stabbed him again and again until he lay dead. Once again, tennis played a part in a crowned sovereign's death. Now, the grievances which led to the murder of James I are fascinating and complex, and I covered this story and its aftermath in two episodes called The Black Dinner of 1440. If you want to know more about medieval intrigue at its most fascinating, and to learn more about events which partly inspired the now eternally famous Red Wedding of Game of Thrones, then I would recommend you listen to those two episodes, which you will find here on this podcast. But back to tennis in the early modern era in the British Isles. James I's son, James II, did not take to tennis with the same vigour as his father, and the sport went into recess for half a century or so in Scotland and England. A progression reinforced in England in 1483, when the English Parliament forbade the import of foreign tennis balls, especially those from France, which greatly disrupted the spread of tennis as a game as the imported balls were far better suited for the increasingly popular tennis racket, which by 1500 had replaced the gloved hand as a hitting device. However, the plight of tennis in England was about to change, for on the 28th of June, 1491, a second son was born to Henry Tudor and his wife, Elizabeth of York. They named their son Henry, and when his elder brother Arthur died, Prince Henry would become heir to the crown of England, and as Henry VIII, he would prove himself to be a devoted tennis player. So, next time, we shall explore tennis 
and the Tudor dynasty, from players to betters to spectators, from Henry to Anne Boleyn and their daughter Elizabeth. Tennis comes to the fore with new, overly complex rules. I hope you liked this episode. If you have suggestions for topics for future episodes, please feel free to mail me. My email is in the episode notes. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.